Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Consultant. Today we're going to do a little learning here. We're going to be talking about the difference between bourbon and whiskey and kind of how it got its start in early America. So if you're ready to learn, get your whiskey glasses out because class is now in session. Hi guys, welcome to the Whiskey Consultant. I'm your host, Susie Lee. I'm recording this from the beautiful Mile High City of Denver. I hope everybody had a great 4th of July weekend. I know I did. And I got together with some of my whiskey buddies that I mentioned in my previous podcast. We got together, talked about a couple of bottles, and lit some very poor quality fireworks <laughs> they were they were pretty bad but it was a fun night and the weather held out so it was a really nice weekend and I hope people got to spend it with their friends and family and appreciate America so one of the biggest questions I've gotten in my bartending career in my chef career and now my career in the liquors industry is what is the difference between bourbon and whiskey? And a lot of times people will follow that up with how did it get started? And I always look at my customer or whoever I'm talking to at the time, and I go, I don't really think you have that much time on your hands right now uh, because it's a long answer, and I think they want a five-minute soundbite from me, and it really isn't that simple. I will definitely talk about it with whoever and whenever, but it's really a long-loaded question when somebody starts in with that, with that format. But when I started learning about whiskey, and this is going to show my age and get ready kids I'm about to do a back in my day there wasn't all these great YouTube videos bloggers and review pages out there on Google now you can type in a bottle and and 18 things will pop up about it when I started I actually had to go to the library and take books out you remember libraries right kids those were the places you used to get books before you got them on tablets but yes I had to go to the library and read books and for some reason it always kind of brought me back to the Founding Fathers, and I find that very, very interesting. George Washington was huge on um, a whiskey enthusiast. He loved to make whiskey. Uh, he has a distillery on his plantation in Mount Vernon that you can still go visit to this day. I've seen it. It's a, it's a beautiful piece of property. But they have a kid that walks around dressed as George Washington, and they do a reenactment about how George went about making his whiskey back in the day, which was based a rye at that point and it wasn't maybe very refined but he was definitely a whiskey enthusiast Thomas Jefferson we know is big into the alcohol making wine whiskey that kind of thing and Abraham Lincoln was as well so like I said it kind of always brought me back to the founding fathers and they kind of brought it over with them with their ancestors and, and the immigrants that came over from England, Europe, Scotland, and Ireland because a lot of people were making whiskey overseas and they kind of brought that with them when they settled in America. And then the rum industry as well. George Washington's brother was a big, uh, was a big rum tycoon, and so Washington kind of knew how to make spirits based off what his brother knew. So that's kind of interesting if you want to go back that far. And how it kind of got pushed in Kentucky, well, we can blame Alexander Hamilton for that. And if you don't know who Alexander Hamilton is, well, 
I I don't know where you've been in the last you know couple of years, but Lin-Manuel Miranda has really brought his name to the forefront of history. And when I started reading about Alexander Hamilton and the whiskey movement, um, like I said, his name popped up a lot as well. And I wound up reading that big thick book that Lin-Manuel Miranda is always saying he got his inspiration from. And it is a great read if you really want to get into the life of Hamilton. But that just kind of brought me back to that when I read when I read that he actually read that book for his inspiration because when I was doing it, I was reading it to research whiskey. <laughs> but uh, I think Lynn and, Lynn and myself had different paths in life. And so Alexander Hamilton was instrumental kind of in the whiskey movement because he decided after the Revolutionary War, America was very broke and it was in debt. And no, don't worry, I'm not going to start rapping. But he was Secretary of Treasury, of course, as everybody knows now. But he thought America needed a financial boost. So one of his ideas, which for better or for worse, was to tax whiskey. At that time, farmers all over the colonies were making it, selling it, trading it. It was a commodity. It was a low-end commodity, but it was a commodity. And Alexander Hamilton kind of saw this opportunity to make extra revenue for America. So he went to Congress and tried to pass the law to for whiskey to be taxed. There's actually a line in Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton are having a rap battle in Congress. It's rap battle, cabinet battle number one, in case you want the reference. And Thomas Jefferson throws a line at Hamilton that goes, when England taxed our tea, we got frisky. Imagine what's going to happen when you try to tax our whiskey. And then Alexander Hamilton comes back and tell, tells them, you know, I'll show you where my shoe fits. Anyway, but <laughs> Lynn was very thorough with his portrayal of Hamilton and how much he learned because not a lot of people know that. But so it was right after the Revolutionary War. People really didn't like the idea of being taxed. They just fought a war against being taxed. So they were not happy about it and they weren't happy with Hamilton. And it's one of the things that kind of hurt his candidacy, truth be told. But so he enacted that he got it passed through Congress and he managed to get his bill passed. And when it started to come into effect and people started going out and collecting taxes for the whiskey, little skirmishes, battles, and all that kind of broke out because people weren't happy about it. There's an account of even a tax collector being tarred and feathered. That's how much they didn't like it. Um, but it kind of woke up in a rising uprising and people said, okay, Hamilton, you want to tax our whiskey? Fine. You do that, but we're going to move. So a lot of people moved out of the jurisdiction of the colonies and they moved out West. Where did they end up? That's right. They ended up in Kentucky and Tennessee, a lot of them. So they got into Kentucky and Tennessee and they, they started making their moonshine and their whiskey again in peace until, you know, that started to get taxed. But they started making their moonshine and whiskey in Kentucky and Tennessee, and moonshine is still a big part of Kentucky and Tennessee heritage to this day. But there was kind of a figure around 1700, 1800, and his name was Elijah Craig. If you've ever gone into a liquor store and seen a bottle of Elijah Craig sitting on the shelf and you wonder, why does this guy get his name on a bottle? Well, Heaven Hill accredits Elijah Craig for coming up with the idea of the charred oak barrel. 
Did he, though? That's a question. There are a lot of allegedly's about this story. A lot of people were making moonshine and whiskey back in the day. Elijah Craig was very notable. He uh, was from Virginia. He was a Baptist preacher, and he was a big entrepreneur, and he was also big into whiskey. He had a couple of distilleries of his own, but they accredit Elijah Craig for coming with the charred oak barrel idea, and really everybody was, like I said, everybody was making whiskey, and who knows where he gotten it from because there's really no documentation to say to back up to reinforce that he actually had anything to do with it so the historians even now are saying that he may or may not have anything to do with the charred oak barrel but the charred oak barrel kind of brought whiskey to what it is today because it lends itself because back in the day it was pretty much moonshine like I said but in the charred oak barrel process, it helps with the coloring, the taste, the flavor, and it kind of makes whiskey whiskey. So if he was in charge of that or if he did have something to do with that, well, that does make him a, a big deal because it kind of changed the face of whiskey for sure. So that's what Heaven Hill states in their bottle that Elijah Craig is the founding father of bourbon. But there's a lot of allegedly's to go with that, a lot of, a lot of asterisks for that. But Heaven Hill kind of pays homage to Elijah Craig that way, and he was, you know, instrumental in the bourbon movement anyway. And then we got to talk about Colonel E.H. Taylor. So Colonel Edmund Haynes Taylor came about in the 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, and started making his own whiskey and decided it would be a good idea to try to get people to come to Kentucky. So he's kind of the founding father of kind of bourbon tourism, and he bought seven distilleries over the course of his life, one of the most famous being the Castle and Key in Frankfurt. And it was actually just an old sawmill, but it looked like a medieval castle, and it was by this very picturesque scene in Kentucky with a stream and a pasture and everything. So he decided to redo it and kind of brought bourbon tourism to the forefront and started the Kentucky Bourbon Trail experience. And that's what he's best known for, that and his bourbons. And actually, the other great thing he's known for is kind of being the founding father of Buffalo Trace. Bourbon nerds and enthusiasts like myself are all about Buffalo Trace products. We research them, we look for them, and we really kind of owe Buffalo Trace to Colonel Taylor because he was kind of the one who invented the, kind of brought up the Buffalo Trace distillery. If you want to know, he wasn't a real colonel. He was more of a Colonel Sanders type colonel. Um, it was kind of an honorary thing. But he did have a lot to do with the bourbon movement. And he helped enact the Bottled and Bond Act, which we're going to talk about that later as well. But Colonel Edmund Haynes Taylor was a big figure in the bourbon industry. A lot of people that make that you see on bottles of bourbon with their names. A lot of people started out at this point. Bullet kind of started out in the pre, right before the Civil War. He started out in the 18, late 1800s. And also we're talking about that time period. We're talking about W.L. Weller. So Weller is best known for inventing the weeded bourbon. 
Weeded bourbon is one of my favorite genres of bourbon, and he decided that it didn't have to be all rye in the mash bill. At that point, people were only making bourbon with grain, uh, rye, and corn, excuse me. So it was not done that weeded was a thing yet, and W.L. Weller made it into a thing. And even Weller on the bottle still says the first, the original, a weeded bourbon. So he decided that would be a great thing to invent. It was, and he thought it would make the bourbon different in flavor and profile, and so it was. Indeed, it was. So Weller is responsible for kind of bringing bourbon into a whole another dimension. When everybody was making rye bourbons, Weller came out with weeded. So if you ever see a bottle that says Weller on it, just know that's where that comes from. And then we got to talk about, of course, Jim Beam. Jim Beam kind of came out in the 1800s, early 1800s. And he was a hobbyist as well. Jim Beam just started out dabbling on his own. But people liked his whiskey so much that they came to his home and would bring their own jugs. And he started realizing he should make a profit off of it and started charging people and became a big name in the bourbon industry. He did some great things for bourbon as well, kind of developing the recipe. And he learned how to make bourbon from Jack Daniels, which is Tennessee bourbon, and we're going to talk about that at some other time. But all these different distillers kind of learned from each other. And we now enter Pappy Van Winkle. Pappy Van Winkle and Weller and Colonel Taylor kind of were around the same time. Pappy Van Winkle is the best bourbon, was the best bourbon out there to the date. Uh, bourbon and whiskey still weren't great things on the shelf and kind of Happy Van Winkle turned it into a very drinkable commodity. Um, Happy Van Winkle is renowned in bourbon circles, bourbon enthusiasts like myself and bourbon nerds all over love the name Happy Van Winkle. We search for his bottles. It's like looking for gold though because there's so small batches that come out of um, Buffalo Trace now but it's kind of if you're into what's in the bottle and you're not all about the the prestige of the bottle, Pappy Van Winkle is one of those that pay homage to how bourbon used to be made. And Anthony Bourdain kind of brought it to light back in his day when um, when he was kind of at the you know high point of his starism. And Anthony Bourdain said it best, Pappy Van Winkle is the best bourbon you can never find. It's expensive if you can find it. It's rare. I've never actually had a bottle of it on my own shelf, which is a shame. But I've actually paid an arm and a leg for it at a restaurant. And if you even see it at a restaurant, that's a rare sighting. But a lot of bourbon enthusiasts, such as myself, will search out for bottles of E.H. Taylor and definitely Pappy Van Winkle because it is so hard to find. They make so little of it. But if you're into that, that's kind of what that's kind of what wakes you up in the bourbon community. But we're talking about, uh, we talked about Weller, and now we're talking about Jim Beam kind of taking off. We'll talk about Old Forester and Wild Turkey at some point as well, but they're more Prohibition-style bourbons, and we're going to talk about those at some point in our podcast talks. But if you talk about Weller and you talk about Jim Beam, 
you really can't have that conversation without talking about Bill Samuels. Bill Samuels is the founder of Maker's Mark. He learned how to make bourbon from Stitzel Weller. He wanted a weeded just like Weller was doing, but his weeded is different. So his weeded is made up of winter red wheat, which is a totally different taste profile and a totally different thing than what Weller was doing. So he went to Stitzel Weller and he learned how to make bourbon there. He actually worked for Stitzel Weller. And then he decided to break out into his own bourbon making. And he actually was a next door neighbor of Jim Beam. And Jim Beam, they were so friendly with each other. Jim Beam was actually his godfather, godfather to his children. But he went to Stitzel Weller and Pappy Van Winkle and learned how to make bourbon. And he was taught by some of the greats. And Maker's Mark is one of those ones that really kind of woke me up to like bourbon. It was, and even when I was starting out, it was considered a high-end bourbon. And it is to this day, even though it it seems to be more affordable than some of these. But in the the time it came out, there wasn't really great high-end bourbon. Bourbon was still kind of bad. It still wasn't taking off. And him and his wife, Margie, kind of marketed it to be an expensive, higher-class bourbon. And even in the 1950s, people people really took it as such. And their slogan is, it tastes expensive because it is. (laughs) And uh, Maker's Mark did this great thing where they marketed it different than most bourbons had been marketed. Margie, his wife, is accredited for a lot of how Maker's Mark is today. She created the the red wax toppers, the bottle, the label, and made it very marketable. She wanted to kind of push the envelope of high-end, really good bourbons. And she wanted to make sure it got into households. She built restaurants around her brand of bourbon. And she is accredited in the Bourbon Hall of Fame for kind of being an innovator in the world of bourbon. And Bill Samuels and his wife Margie are definitely standards now. People kind of say Maker's Mark is a true representative of what a good Kentucky bourbon is, and I tend to agree. If somebody comes up to me and says, Susie, my kid is turning 21 and they want to start with whiskey, what do I give them? I generally give them a bottle of Maker's Mark to start out. And Maker's Mark, like I said, really lit my fire to learn about more, and as soon as I started learning about Maker's Mark, that got me into Pappy Van Winkle, that got me into Weller, and then I just had to try the bottles, and so like I said, it's a it's a vicious cycle. But Meeker's Mark is kind of a modern day father. He didn't come around until 1943 and, and that in that time period. But he learned from the best. He learned from Weller and he learned from Jim Beam probably a little bit. And he also learned from Pappy Van Winkle. So that's kind of the founding fathers of bourbon, if you will. And if you ever see these names out and about, kind of know that that's where it all got started. I know a lot of people just know them, and they're just kind of labels now on bottles. Elijah Craig and Jack Daniels and Jim Beam. You know, people just throw them out there like they're like they're ketchup and mustard now. But kind of think about you know the past and how they how they managed to bring bourbon and whiskey to the forefront. So we're going to talk about what makes bourbon and whiskey different a little bit. I get this question a lot. And really, like I said, I wish it was an easy answer, but it's not. Bourbon is very different from whiskey, from Canadian whiskey, from Irish whiskey, etc. So bourbon has to have a few things. Bourbon has to be 51% corn in the mash bill. 
And since we're going down this route, Mashbill is the recipe on the bottle. So if you see a bottle with a percentage ratio on it that has corn, rye, or barley, and or barley on it, that's going to be the Mashbill. And it'll say this percentage of corn, this percentage of rye, this percentage of barley, and that's the recipe the distillers used. So it has to be 51% 51 corn in the Mashbill. And it also has to come in a new American charred oak barrel. We talked about Elijah Craig coming up with that allegedly. But it has to come in a new American charred oak barrel that is non-negotiable. It's a non-starter. And it really helps with the bourbon aging. So if you guys don't know what a charred barrel does to bourbon, it actually colors the alcohol itself so if you see bourbon and it's different colors of brown lighter darker that just means it's picked up some sugar from the chard of the barrel and that's what makes it brown there's no artificial oh that's another thing there's no artificial colors preservatives sugars or anything like that in bourbon or whiskey to be honest with you so bourbon picks up the alcohol that they put in the barrel picks up the colors from the charredness and they pick up a lot of flavors you're like your brown sugar your toffee your caramel your vanilla definitely your oak and a little bit of fruit flavors as well if you don't know how to sound when you're talking about bourbon just say it tastes like caramel or brown sugar and vanilla and oak. Odds are you're probably right because a lot of bourbons start out that way. Maker's Mark kind of reinvented the wheel a little bit with a charred oak because they figured out moving it around in a warehouse actually helped the flavor of it. So Maker's Mark has this huge warehouse in Kentucky and they move it from an upper level to a lower level to a basement level. And the seasons in Kentucky also help the flavor profile of bourbon as well. That's why Kentucky's kind of fevered. But it also acclimates to temperature. It changes properties. It changes kind of the taste of it. And Jefferson's is another line of great bourbon. It's a very high-end bourbon, though. But Jefferson's kind of figured this out, too, except they started doing it on ships and shipping their bourbon down the Mississippi or the Ohio River to um, kind of get it rolling around. So whenever you move the whiskey around, it picks up tannins, it picks up flavors and great profiles. And the longer it sits, generally the better it gets. Not always. Not it's, that's, that's not a rule of thumb or anything, but it kind of does happen that way. Um, so the new American charred oak barrel definitely helps and it's definitely a requirement in bourbon. The other thing is, and the alcohol, the EBV level on bourbon itself has to come out to 80 proof, which I do believe, and I'm really kind of thinking of this on the top of my head right now, I think it's 45% EBV in the weight. So that makes anything that's bourbon has to come out over 80 proof. Anything under 90 proof, I generally don't like just because it messes with the flavor. But I do like full proofs and I do like stuff over 90 proof. So keep in mind, bourbon won't be anything under 80 proof. That's a requirement too. And like I said, we talked about it has no artificial flavors, food coloring, or anything like that. 
So we talked about rye a little bit and weeded. If you just see a label on the uh, bottle of bourbon you're looking at and it says weeded on the front of it in quotations, that just means it's a full weeded mash bill, that it doesn't have any rye in it. If you see one that says high rye on the mash bill, that just means it's a high rye mash bill bourbon and that it has to be more than 15% rye in the mash bill to be called a high rye mash bill bourbon. We're going to be talking about the Pinhook Kentucky Straight here in a minute, and that is a high rye one for sure. So if you see those, that's just what that means. Weeded is one of my favorite genres. Weller is one of my favorites because I like the weeded texture. I like the palette the palette it has on it and they tend to be a little sweeter because I said like I said rye is kind of spicy it can be overpowering depending on how it's blended or made so keep that in mind if you're looking to get started there's also a thing called bottled in bond a genre called bottled in bond and that is just because back in the day um, people went to the government and said hey if we do these requirements if we do it everything under under your standards, can we get a tax break? And Colonel E.H. Taylor was very involved in making the process of bottled and bond a thing because whiskey makers really wanted a tax break. So all bottled and bond means is that it came out of a federally regulated warehouse. So they make these bottles, the recipe has to be made there, the, bottle, the bottling has to be done there. It has to be a minimum of four years and it has to be 100 proof to be considered a bottled and bond. So that's what that means. The government comes in, they regulate the label, the mash bill, the, the bottling itself. And that's all that means. It's just a federally regulated bottle of bourbon. So if you see a bottle in bond out in the wild, chances are you will. That's what that means. Four, out, four, <laughs> four years and um, 100 proof. And the Williams makes a great bottle in bond. Early Times make, makes a bottle in bond. And the George Dickel bottle in bond just won a Whiskey of the Year award. And that's a Tennessee whiskey. And that's a whole different other subject. Don't get me started. So that's kind of the basics of what you can expect to find at your liquor store. High rye, uh, definitely weeded, and the mash bill process. So the difference between that and whiskey, whiskey doesn't follow any of those guidelines. The only thing whiskey has to follow is it does have to be an American oak barrel that's aged in. But it doesn't have to be new. It can be one that was used for port or wine or rum even and that's what you know that that's not a huge requirement like it is in bourbon also whiskey doesn't have to have an age statement it doesn't have to be more than two years to be considered Kentucky straight it has to be more than two years but whiskey itself doesn't have to have an age statement and then whiskey doesn't have to follow the mash bill either so it has very lax requirements and whiskey doesn't have to come up to that 80 proof level it can be any proof so whiskey doesn't meet the those requirements and that's the difference between whiskey and bourbon so if you see a bottle that says whiskey just know that it's not as specific as bourbon with bourbon you can expect some specific things maybe not today's age because there's a lot of stuff out there now that is being called bourbon uh, they have to actually get a license to be called bourbon still but there's a lot of great stuff that kind of pushes the envelope um, Texas is coming out with great whiskeys Nevada Wyoming Alabama has some great whiskeys and Tennessee has always been great at making whiskey but they can't be called Kentucky bourbon that's just a thing there and all and all bourbon and American whiskey can only be made in America the only time
time I think whiskey wasn't made in America was during Prohibition when Wild Turkey took their whole distillation process and moved it to Juarez, Mexico so they could still make money. And that's the only time I think whiskey has not been made in America. Just like Canadian whiskey and Irish whiskey, etc. American whiskey has to be made in the States. And so there's your differences right there. That'll get you through your whiskey aisle for sure. I think to start you out, especially if you can't find anybody to help you and you're just staring at this label, you can say, oh yeah, I remember that Susie told me bottled and bond was four years and 100 proof. So I hope that helps you guys out in the liquor aisle. My next thing is we're going to talk about Pinhook Bohemian Kentucky Straight, which is very fitting because we just got done talking about Colonel E.H. Taylor. We're going to kind of bring him back to the conversation. And we talked about his Castle and Key Distillery. Well, it got abandoned um, pretty pretty back in the day, like 40 years ago, it got abandoned. And in 2014, Buffalo Trace Sazerac bought it up and redid it, revamped it, and they're hoping to make it another part of the tourist destination like it used to be. And But nothing had come out of there in over 40 years. Pinhook came out in 2008, and Pinhook was bottled and, you know, came out of the Castle and Key distillery. So nothing had come out of the Castle and Key in 40 years, and Pinhook is kind of its phoenix from the ashes. So the Pinhook lineup is kind of an ode to Kentucky itself. Pinhook is a name, if you don't know the term Pinhook, it's just a name for horses that have been specifically bred and raised for racing. And so the owner is big into Kentucky bourbon and big into horse racing. So like I said, kind of a sweet ode to Kentucky. The toppers are wax toppers like Maker's Mark does, but they're cool because they also come in different colors. The Kentucky original comes in an orange, the cash shrink comes in a blue, the rye comes in a bright green and this one comes in a bright pink magenta and they're representative of Silk's jockey's wear so kind of the topper and then the label has a horse so it's really a lot of fun to have on your bar the horses are actually real pinhooks they're hoping will win a race someday and they're kind of paid homage to the to the pinhooks that exist in real life this one is called bohemian bourbon which i think is very fitting the label has a picture of the horse on there all pinhooks lineup has pictures of horses on there and the stats as well it's a really cool addition to your bar. It looks really great. That pop of color on the wax toppers is just a fun conversation starter to begin with. And they really knew what they were doing because when you're out at a restaurant or a bar or anything like that, you can definitely, they definitely kind of pop out at you. And if you're a horse lover like me, well, you're just kind of drawn to the label. The Pinhook Bohemian Kentucky Straight is a recipe made by master teaster Sean Joseph. He is a co-founder of Pinhook, and he blended this over 100 barrels of MGP juice. We're not going to get into MGP juice today. We will, for sure. But MGP juice is just an acronym for Midwestern Grain Production. If you want to do a little homework before we get into it at some point, feel free to look it up on the internet. It's very, uh, uh, there's a lot of information about it out there. So he, he made this from MGP juice, 100 different barrels, and, you know, took the time to blend it and proof it as well. 
It is a high-proofed bourbon. It comes in at 114.5 proof. So you can expect this bourbon to give you a little bit of that Kentucky hug and have a little bit of a Kentucky kick. And as always, I say, there's no crying in bourbon, so suck it up. Uh, it does burn a little bit on the way down in the chest. Even an experienced drinker like myself who loves full-proof bourbons, this one did have a burn. But that's also because of the high rye in the mash bill. It is a high rye to mash bill bourbon like we talked about, 75% corn, 15% rye, and then the rest is barley. And so it has a lot of great flavors. It comes out at the forefront with a lot of citrus, candied orange peel, candied lemon peel. Think of that. And then in the middle, there's a lot of that rye spice, the clove, cinnamon, black pepper. And then it has a nice, long, lingering finish. It has uh, great notes of cocoa and nuts in the back. And then a little mint in there, too. It does kind of smell like hay when you open it up because of the high rye in it, which is kind of fun considering there's a horse on the label. It's a light brown caramel color. It's not a young, it's not an old bourbon, excuse me. The age on it is 34 to 36 months. So it barely meets that Kentucky straight qualification, but it does. Pinhook doesn't believe in long engagements. All of their bourbons are generally 34 to 36 months of age. Their original one was that age statement as well. They do make older ones, but those are going to be their limited release ones, and you're, you're going to be, you know, pressed to find those. But I didn't like the original Pinhook Kentucky straight that they had that was out, and that kind of, I wanted to try it, and I was excited about it, and for some reason it was just too young, it was too harsh for me, and I really didn't like it, I wound up giving it away. And then I tried the Bohemian Kentucky Straight, and it's a whole different ball game. It's very complex. It's very well-blended. It's very well-rounded bourbon. And it's a great representation, I think, of a high-rye bourbon. And generally, high-ryes aren't my favorite, but I enjoyed the complexities of this bourbon. So I give it a 7.5 rating on a scale of 1 to 10. And I give it that. It could have been an 8 but it's pricey, so it comes in at $50 MSRP. But there's reasons for that because, guys, there's only 20,000 bottles of this in the entire world. That's right. That is not a lot. So it's going to be a rare one. It's going to be a fun one to look out for. And they're going to do new releases every year. But this one, this next one coming up, probably won't be this batch. It probably won't be this recipe. And it probably won't have the same horse or the same topper. So those are going to be fun to collect all over the board. And if this one is a representation of what the others are going to be. I'm looking forward to collecting them as well. So if you're into trying something new and something with a little bit of a Kentucky kick, grab your bottle of Pinhook Bohemian Kentucky Straight. And it's a cool addition to your bar for sure and one that I will be recommending. It'll run you 50 bucks MSRP if you're buying it from a smaller shop. I'm guessing they're probably going to jack it up to 70 to 80 bucks. Is it worth it? I think it is. Just for the history behind the old castle and key and that and the taste of it as well. Sometimes it's about what's in the bottle, not about the history of the bottle. But this one meets kind of both. So I give it a good, a good solid recommendation. And guys, I hope that this gets you excited to go out and try picking up a bottle of Elijah Craig Weller if you can find it. And Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and this weekend and see 
what kind of it brings back what we talked about and I love teaching people about bourbon and whiskey and this is never a boring conversation for me so I hope you guys had as much fun as I did I got my donate button up and running on my Facebook so if you guys would like to become a patron of the whiskey consultant send me a few bucks and I'll sign you up and if you guys still have any bottles of Eagle Rare 17 I'm taking those too just kidding anyway guys have a great week have a great weekend and as always keep testing keep trying and keep exploring the world of whiskey cheers